episode finds us at the Luau, a tiki venue in the heart of Fitzroy in Melbourne. Yes, we're on Johnson Street and you might be wondering why we're here. Yeah, yeah, why are we in a tiki bar? So like, you know like those guys you see on early morning TV? Mm-hmm. With the guy, usually he's very charismatic. Yeah, very charismatic. Uh, and he's there healing people through the power of prayer and he's often like putting his hand on them and then they walk away and they're healed. I always thought that was an American thing. Yeah, so what does that have to do with the Luau? Well, this in fact is the very place where the first church was built where it all began. The Free Christian Tabernacle. But the guy in question who started this whole movement, well, I don't think he'd be particularly impressed by what's become of it. No, he wasn't really into drinking. No, he was pretty anti-fun in general, didn't like entertainments of all sorts, hated burlesque, a lot of burlesque shows here. Uh, So, yes, I think he'd be rolling in his grave to see where we are now. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. Welcome to Dead and Buried Podcast, a series which delves deep into the underground history of Melbourne. I'm Lee Hooper. And I'm Kylie Gotten. episode, we take you through the extraordinary story of John Alexander Dowie, the world's first celebrity preacher. Born in Scotland, Dowie migrated to Australia in his teens and grew up to preach in South Australia, Sydney and of course Melbourne. Controversy seemed to follow him everywhere, including the United States, where he would quickly rise to international fame and notoriety. He was a pioneer in his hour and he's a man that we can learn a lot from. You might say, well, he lived in the 19th century. What has he got for us today? Well, he was a man that brought back a revelation that Jesus was the healer. As you look at the various Pentecostal movements that came on, they all, either directly or indirectly, can tie themselves with Dowie. Dowie truly was a man who was larger than life. And if you lived over 100 years ago, you'd be hard-pressed not to know all about this man who was continuously in the newspapers. He was a bold voice that dared stand up against the vices of the hour. He had no time for the tobacco or liquor industry. He believed not that Jesus could heal, but that Jesus wanted to heal. He believed that it was not God's will to see you sick, that God didn't work in some perverted way, but instead that God desired that all be healed. He believed healing and holiness went together. That's faith revivalist Robert Pierce. I was put in touch with Robert by the Historical Society in Zion, Illinois, which you'll later see has important historical connections to Dowie. In spite of his legacy and impact at the time, amazingly, there are very few experts on Dowie based in Australia. In researching this story, I turned further afield. Robert and I were investigating Dowie at the same time, though from different perspectives. 
While I passed on what we had discovered about Dowie's Australian years to Robert, he in turn gave me access to his materials. This included his recorded and subsequent interviews with evangelist historians, such as Dr Barry Chant, which will feature in the episode. Now, before we dive in, I'll just preface that in making this episode, we didn't set out to examine the religious history of faith healing or any of its modern incarnations. If you'd like more on the topic, we've got a few links on our website to get you started. Okay, so let's start with the classic Neapolitan ice cream introduction, which is beloved by historians everywhere, including us. Oh, yeah. Name, place and date of birth. So Dowie was born in 1847 at St Andrew's Parish in Edinburgh, Scotland, to his father, John Murray Dowie, and his mother, Anne McFarlane. In 1860, his family migrated to Adelaide in South Australia. The immigration records for Dowie's father listed him as a cutter, a profession which doesn't really exist anymore but was kind of like a tailor. But they weren't the first of the Dowie clan to make the big move. They joined young Dowie's uncle Alexander, who years earlier had established a successful boot factory in Rundle Street. Today, the site is next to Adelaide's main shopping hub, Rundle Mall, which is famous for its giant silver public art, known by the locals as the Mall's Balls. After studying for the ministry in Adelaide, at age 20, Dowie returned to Scotland to take up an arts degree at the University of Edinburgh. Then in 1872, on his father's urging, he returned to South Australia, where a spot had opened up for him as a pastor in the tiny settlement of Alma, about 80 kilometres north of Adelaide. It wasn't an easy time for him. He had to ride horseback for long distances to reach his parishioners and there were signs of disagreement with the church's management. After only a few months, he returned to Adelaide. Back in Adelaide, Dowie reveals to a young woman named Jeannie that he's in love with her, but there's a slight problem. Jeannie is his cousin. While marriage between first cousins was not an entirely uncommon arrangement in the 19th century, Dowie's uncle Alexander, the bootmaker, wasn't too keen on his nephew getting hitched to his daughter. She's also pretty uncertain about the whole thing. In the face of possible rejection, Dowie rushes off to Sydney, where he takes up a parsonage in the coastal suburb of Manly. He writes, and I'm quoting, My only hope was that distance and time and other associations might work a cure. And it appears to have worked. According to his letters, the more he threw himself into his work, the more people flocked to his parsonage. But there's already signs of Dowie's growing ambition. Writing to a young convert in 1873, he reveals, and I'm quoting, I sadly feel that I want more room, more population to work upon, and cannot stay much longer here. In February 1875, Dowie moved to a New Sydney parsonage in the suburb of Newtown. Writing to his parents, he continued to lament his single status, saying, and I'm quoting here, The house I live in is church property. The furnishings, of course, have devolved upon me, and very costly indeed it is. For in the position I am in, in which I am placed, I am compelled to furnish in a style corresponding to that of the house and my status among the people. You will see how large a house I am in, and still a bachelor. However, I am not without hope that by and by the Lord will grant me that great blessing, a good wife. I am not a bachelor by choice, but by necessity. I will not marry mere beauty or money bags, and unless I truly love, not at all. But it ends well for Dowie in that department, because in 1875, he ends up marrying his sweetheart, Jeannie. 
Yeah, but in the first few years of his marriage to Jeannie, the young couple had almost all of their furniture carted off to pay for their debts, and Anki Alexander had to bail them out. It's the early signs of financial mismanagement that would frequently come back to bite Dowie. In years to come, Dowie would say that it was in Newtown that he had an awakening, a realisation about the power of faith healing. So what did he write about this event? And how has this been interpreted by his followers? Here's Dr Barry Chant recalling the story over Skype. And uh, it seems like in 1875 there was some sort of an epidemic in, in the east coast of Australia. The only uh, recorded epidemics in that time were measles and scarlet fever. Nowadays measles is readily treatable, but in those days it was a potentially fatal disease. And so many people in his church were suffering and dying from this epidemic, whatever it was. On one occasion, he was called to pray for a young woman who was very, very sick. And as he was preparing to go, he was praying and just really seeking God as to why this sickness was happening and why people were not recovering. He came across Acts chapter 10, verse 38, which is a classic text on divine healing. It says... God, and it's the words of Peter, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil because God was with him. And now he began, when he read that, he thought, this is not God's work, this is the devil's work. And so uh, he went, uh, encouraged by this and emboldened by that, he went to pray for this young woman. When he got to the door of the house, the doctor was just leaving. And the doctor made some comment like, um, oh, Mr. Dowie, are not the ways of God mysterious? And uh, Dowie, in uh, some uh, sort of uh, new revelation, said, this is not God's way, this is the devil's way. The doctor got quite concerned. He thought Dowie would become irrational and that maybe that he was sick. But anyhow, uh, Dowie went in, he prayed for the girl, she fell asleep. And then uh, two hours later, she woke up, no trace of sickness, no trace of disease, and she was perfectly well. And so Dowie then began to say, uh, if God could heal in A.D., 75, why can't he heal in 1875? It became a sort of bit of a, a cry, a catch cry, watchword, if you like, at that time. Dowie was known for conducting acts of divine healing, where he says he was able to heal sick or injured people, often in front of mass audiences. In these healing ceremonies, the injured would typically appear on stage in a wheelchair or braces, and Dowie would heal them by placing his hands on them and praying. The sick person would then show that they were now healed by taking off the brace or rising from their wheelchair and chucking it into the growing pile of medical paraphernalia before running around the stage excitedly, not unlike something you might see today. Most newspapers, however, took a pretty sceptical view in these sessions. The Fitzroy City Press reported that on one occasion Dowie, and I'm quoting here, had quite an array of glass bottles on the table in front of him and which were cancers tapeworms, corns, cysts and all sorts of curious-looking objects alleged to have been taken from the human body as a result of prayer offering. Here's Dr Chant with some information from other sources about Dowie's healing meetings. Then he went to Melbourne. He went there as a, a, a minister, just a relieving minister, taking over the church while the pastor was away. And during that time, that's where he really began to teach and preach divine healing, looking at the early 1880s. Probably 1883, thereabouts, he 
they, he began to hold an annual commemoration meeting uh, where people were invited to come and testify how God had answered and met their needs. Now, most of the records of those have disappeared, but there's one record from 1887, which is described a weekend of meetings, uh, and a lot of that time was taken up just for people bringing testimonies of healing. And these have all been recorded, you know, things like blindness and cancer and, um, and lameness and all, all manner of things that people gave a detailed uh, reports of, and many of them, a year or two or three, that people were saying, you know, I've been recovered all that time. And uh, that got the healing ministry really known through Dowie at that, that point. So he was a, a, a pioneer in the, in the healing ministry, sort of broke through in a way that others had not done at that time, really anywhere in the world, really, as far as we know. It's quite a, a unique and um, innovative and creative, positive. Uh, Some of these healing events Barry is talking about happened in Melbourne, but we're jumping ahead of ourselves a bit here. Let's go back to Sydney in 1875. Dowie records that he's preaching to thousands and healed many of his followers. But despite this, he can't prevent the death of his daughter, who dies the following year from illness. In addition, his reputation is compromised after a couple of big mistakes in the eyes of the public. The first is that he runs for a seat in a New South Wales colonial state by-election and loses by a lot. The second is that he meets this American guy, William Holding. Holding tells Dowie that he's actually richer than he looks... His father was a millionaire, but he drowned in the New York Hudson River, so now he's flush with cash. Holding promises Dowie that he'll give him £21,000 to build his own church, but he's got to get that money from England and needs £300 from his good old buddy Dowie to get there. What a shame that Dowie wasn't around the time of emails from Nigerian princes, because if he was, he might have woken up to the fact that he was being scammed. Holding heads to England and disappears. The only information that Dowie can find out about this is that Holding has apparently died while over in England. Sure he has. <laughs> With the embarrassment of losing the election and being ripped off, there's not much left for him in Sydney. So Dowie packs his bags and moves down south to seek better prospects in Melbourne, which is how we ended up at a bar looking for a faith healer. Yeah, so we're out the front of the Luau now, which is on Johnson Street in Fitzroy. And this is where Dowie's purpose-built church once stood, the Free Christian Tabernacle. Yeah, and I, I wanted to know exactly where Dowie's church stood because uh, I knew it was in Johnson Street. So I went and found the plans and I got really, really excited because I thought that the church was actually at this venue called the Old Bar. We're like barflies there, aren't we? Baby? Yeah, it's our local. It's our local, yeah. Uh, but actually, it's a few doors down. So what's funny is that the Luau is actually shutting down. And so it'd be interesting to know what it's going to be reincarnated to into the future. Probably wouldn't think that it would become a church again. And we should say that this is actually Dowie's second church in Melbourne. He left the first, which was set up down the road in Collingwood and is now apartments, after a dispute with church management, in which he defended himself with his treaties, The Sin in the Camp, which you can also get access to on our website. Anyway, it's right here that on the 1st of May 1885, Dowie was forcibly evicted by his landlord, William Thompson. The landlord, who was a member of Dowie's church, had drafted up an agreement for the church to lease the land even before the church was built. But then things went pear-shaped and Thompson refused to agree to the lease. Yeah, so Thompson brought along a bailiff and senior constable Burke with him 
and there's reportedly a scuffle between Dowie and the bailiff's face is scratched. And there's also a fight between Thompson and Dowie. And Mrs Dowie and a few followers of the church, they're booted out, they're forcibly removed. That's right. And according to the Argus newspaper, a group of Dowie's followers say that they will take back the church by force. But the landlord, Mr Thompson, keeps, and I quote, a strong body of men to guard it. Dowie advertises in the local rag that he'll preach at the tabernacle, but newspapers report that he holds a service at a boot factory. In the evening, his followers assemble with lightened torches. But according to the Argus, a disorderly crowd of about 2,000 to 3,000 people followed them, pelting stones and injuring two policemen. So the crowd returned to the tabernacle and attempted to hold a sermon there on vacant ground next to it. But this didn't happen either because Dowie was jostled by the crowd and he couldn't do it. So what's interesting about these sorts of incidents is that you get a real sense of Dowie's bold and pretty righteous character. So Dowie regularly held these street sermons where he walked around Fitzroy with a bunch of followers singing, preaching and calling upon others to join the church. And we're actually walking down the very route described by Mrs Dowie. Uh, and that's from the Johnson Street Church where we just were, out the front of Luau, uh, down Fitzroy Street, along Kerr Street, we're going to get there in a minute, and until we hit Smith Street, which is where the followers went. And then we go back around the route to return to the tabernacle. So while this dispute is going down with the landlord, there's also some kind of beef between him and the Fitzroy Council, probably because Dowie is lampooning the moral standing of the councillors in his sermons. A bylaw is carried by the Fitzroy Council forbidding street meetings, which includes these processions. So in typical Dowie style, he just ignores this rule in April and again in March. And then on the 2nd of May, he's tried for the breach of the bylaw before the Fitzroy Court. Dowie conducted his own defence, arguing, amongst other things, that the procession was commanded by scripture. His arguments were overruled and he's found guilty and fined. When he refused to pay the fine because he didn't have the funds, he was thrown into prison and had to serve out a month's sentence. There's really two sides to this situation, which is summed up in the Australasian newspaper, and I quote, You don't like to see a man go to the same prison as vagabonds and thieves for the venial offence of pushing their religious zeal a little bit too far. It is a Dowie way of carrying the gospel into the lanes and byways of the city. The other side of the question is that Dowie and his followers, every time they parade the streets of Fitzroy, bring out the larrikins and rowdies of the neighbourhood, and none of their nightly gatherings go off without a public disturbance. Dowie has been ruling Fitzroy in his own way for the last two years. And yeah, the councillors clearly didn't like Dowie, but then he was causing a ruckus. We know that the leader of the Salvation Army was arrested for a similar offence in the suburb of Paran, but he was spared his prison sentence on the promise that the church would stop the parades, and they did. The same terms were offered to Dowie, but of course he refused. And so he served out the full month of imprisonment, but then when he couldn't afford the fine, he's put in jail a second time. However, this time he only spends a week behind bars because his followers successfully petitioned for his release. Meanwhile, Thompson, the landlord, is ordered by the courts to allow Dowie the use of the church building on Johnson Street until their legal dispute is resolved, which it is eventually. So, Lee, in the 1880s when Dowie was here, it was a bit of a slum area. 
Do you think much has changed? Well, it probably smelt the same. Yeah, yeah. There's a bit of a, a whiff of uh, pee. Pee. Yep. Yeah. But there's a lot of beautiful street art surrounding us, which probably wouldn't have been there in Dowie's day. Maybe some graffiti, yeah. like handwritten graffiti. Actually, that's something to look into. So we're back here out the front of the Blue Owl after our little walk around Fitzroy. And uh, we've just been talking about the troubles that Dowie had. But sadly for him, that wasn't the end of his troubles. On the 31st of August, 1885, Dowie arrived at the tabernacle to find his pastor's room was demolished as a result of an explosion. According to reports from neighbours, the blast had occurred just after he had left the previous night. There was evidence of it being a deliberate attempt on his life, and Dowie even wrote that he felt, and I'm quoting Dowie, a premonition of death that day. Dowie believed that this attack was provoked by his temperance preaching, but we know that Dowie wasn't the only one at this time who was anti-alcohol. There were, for example, other church leaders and, of course, some facets of the women's suffrage movement who were against this. Most of them. Yeah, a lot. Uh, so why did people hate Dowie so much? Why was he so despised? Not only was he passionate about healing, but he, he also was passionate about social issues. So he became a very strong uh, voice, a pr pr prophetic voice against uh, nicotine and alcohol, and strongly denounced uh, drinking and smoking. He used to call smokers uh, unmitigated stink pots, phrase he used in the pulpit. It didn't help people very much. <laughs> Some people didn't like him very much. So he was very, very sarcastic and very biting in his, in his approach. And uh, he, he had no hesitation in denouncing things like alcohol and smoking. But he also attacked the theatre. Not the cinema in those days, of course, but um, not just vaudeville theatre, but he, he denounced um, what we would today call the quite respectable drama, I guess. Uh, he denounced um, a lot of opera. He didn't like a lot of opera music. He particularly mentioned Wagner. Uh, and in his denunciation of drama, he actually shows quite a wide knowledge of drama. He obviously was well-read in English literature. So he's in a funny mix where he read all this stuff and he knew it all, but was most unimpressed, saw it as worldly, saw it as, as devilish and denounced it. it. just makes you wonder what on earth he would say today if you put him into one of our cinemas today. I sat him in front of a TV screen for a few hours and he would think about what we see today. He also attacked the Roman church. He attacked spiritualism. Um, he had to go at almost anything that he thought was not up to, up to scratch and not, uh, not biblical and not spiritual. And of course, all this made him lots of enemies. But it reflected also in his own heart and spirit a great passion for righteousness, a great passion to... Uh, to avoid sin and evil, uh, great passion for holiness, and, and all these were sort of part and parcel of the mix of the man. Today you'd probably say maybe a bit fanatical, but certainly a, a man of great zeal and great passion. In 1888, Dowie writes that he feels he has greater and bigger callings. In March, the family board the Maranoa, destined for the United States. A Mr Wilbur Voliver moves over from America to take on leadership of the Johnson Street Church in Melbourne. Also, Lee, before we get to the US, though, do you remember that scammer guy holding? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Dowie was at this parade in the South Melbourne cricket ground, and this is before he's gone to the US, when he spots this person who he recognises or seems to recognise in a Salvation Army officer uniform. It's the scammer holding, 
and he's disguised as a Salvation Army officer. So Dowie has him arrested and Holding confesses everything to the police, including other frauds he's committed in London, Paris and New York. Wow, so something finally went right for Dowie. Yeah, for once. Well, back to the USA. After spending two years in San Francisco, Dowie moved on to the city of Chicago. Here's Robert's take on this particular chapter in his life. In 1888, he holds a meeting in his church and they begin to pray and they assign new leaders. And at midnight, uh, after an all-night prayer, um, Dowie leaves with his family and they come here to the U.S. Dowie rose to fame in 1893 by renting the property adjacent to the World's Fair, across the way from Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. While the World's Fair showcased many medical scientific achievements, Dowie's sermons and brand of healing fiercely attacked the medical profession. The front wall of their healing centre in Chicago was covered in crutches, walking sticks, wheelchairs and other medical paraphernalia that had been cast off, useless to those who claimed to be healed at Dowie's meetings. Well, you can probably guess how the medical community in Chicago felt about Dowie. By 1895, 100 criminal charges had been laid against him for practising medicine without a licence, although none were successful. And so, with his church in Chicago and worldwide fame growing, he began to gather finances for his most ambitious project to date, the foundation of the city of Zion in Illinois. Dowie's voice you just heard delivering one of his sermons. And you may have picked up that he's talking about this vision he has for the religious city of Zion. Zion was founded under this scheme where Dowie was the sole owner of the land. Anyone who wanted to live there had to buy stocks in Zion Industries and lease the property on which they would build their house. Land was available on an 1,100-year lease on the assumption that the return of Christ would occur within 100 years Um, But I'm not really sure what that other 1,000 years was for, to be honest. Yeah, most likely it's the sort of place that would only appeal to the most devout. There are a lot of don'ts. No smoking, drinking or eating pork. And forget about theatres, dance halls, doctors' surgeries and pharmacies. All of those were out. But there was also this striving for self-sufficiency and complete economic independence. It had its own industries, including box making, bricklaying, a laboratory a bakery, sugar and confectionery making, and the jewel in the crown, lace making, for which the machines and workers were imported from England. Zion was a planned city, and Dowie clearly hadn't forgotten his Scottish heritage because the streets were planned to mirror the Union Jack. You can even watch YouTube videos showing exactly how the layout of the streets made up its components. 
It was in Zion that Dowie built his home, Sheola House, which today is a museum run by the Zion Historical Society. It was at this time that Dowie's fame really peaked, but this was also the beginning of his financial and public downfall. Problems arising from his bad financial management and his obsession with acquiring and demonstrating personal wealth and status become blatantly apparent, something that evangelist Robert Pierce readily acknowledges. He disbands his group of 70s and sets up a new group and they've got to swear allegiance to him and declare that he is Elijah. Dowie's influence, he's been all this, he's been very effective, he's been growing, he's been really prospering and been blessed. Everything changed when he made that announcement. Because pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And we start to see a true change in Dowie. Dowie takes full control over Zion. He's got control over the three branches, which are the church branch, the academic branch, and the business branch. He controls the bank. He can write the checks. He has full control. And we've seen in his history that he, in terms of finances, he was not very good. Much like the Australian press, Dowie was despised by much of the US media. He was accused of being a swindler and derided in unflattering satirical cartoons, perhaps most memorably caricatured as the prophet for profit. He was so well known he even appeared as a minor character in James Joyce's famous novel Ulysses. At the same time, Zion Industries was struggling financially and even though members of his congregation were literally starving, he planned and embarked upon a world tour where he would visit Europe, the UK, New Zealand and Australia. He had special dark blue robes prepared for the event, which took the seamstresses in Zion three months to complete. While undoubtedly reckless and self-indulgent, his behaviour was perhaps a sign of someone yet again throwing himself into his cause to escape personal discomfort and tragedy. What does someone like Robert think about this? In 1904, a tragic thing happens where his daughter, who was at their apartment in Chicago, they're close to completion on the building of the Shiloh home. He's him and his wife. His wife's just returned from France where she's bought fine dresses. They are now living in a time where they're very blessed. Zion has begun to struggle, but they're blessed. They have a lot of finances. They got this beautiful house. And Dowie gets word that his daughter's been injured. She was curling her hair and used a um, lantern fueled by alcohol to heat that curling iron. The alcohol spilled over her and she's in a room locked and she didn't act right. And so the alcohol ends up burning most of her body. And so Dowie and his wife have to run home by train and by horse. It's a long journey home. He prays with her and she never recovers. She does get uh, delivered from the pain, but she dies shortly afterwards. He is broken by this event as we've seen at the grave and everything else. He is truly broken. He was no longer having the success he had and he's now becoming a man prideful. He's talking about his healings and what he did and about Dowie. And he starts to attack all the people coming against him. He's talking about the great persecution of him. And it's all about him. It's not about the people, it's about him. I think this began the final stage in the demise of Dowie. And it, it, it really, I think, sowed the seeds that brought division in the family and would ultimately, as I said, bring the end. So how did the tour go down? Well, not as great as Dowie might have hoped for. Reporting on his first Australian meeting in Sydney, Dowie telegraphed back, enthusiastic receptions at Auckland and Sydney. 10,000 attendants today at City Hall and Sydney deeply stirred. Australia awake everywhere. Yet even Dowie admitted in his letters that they were continuously interrupted by antagonists 
who sung over the hymns. The service had to be concluded early, and to avoid the rowdy masses, Dowie was escorted by police through an underground passage to a side door and into a cab. According to the Age newspaper, two or three hundred people showed up at Spencer Street Station to witness Dowie's arrival in Melbourne. Most of them were well-dressed young men who were there to jeer at him. His followers, wearing the symbols of Zion City, were overwhelmed by the larrikins. Dowie held rallies at the Royal Exhibition Building, but the press reported that the meetings were broken up by an unruly mob who mocked and chanted, ''Hang old Dowie on a sour apple tree!'' Uh, ''Catchy!'' (laughs) And while meetings in the city were more orderly, Dowie wrote that, ''A brutal mob surrounded us Monday afternoon, grossly insulted Mrs Dowie, seized the horses' heads and tried to cut the traces and overturn the carriage.'' Yeah, and according to the Argus, Dowie had said, ''This was not the same Melbourne who had listened to him 16 years ago.'' He was glad to be an American citizen and the God Almighty had not wanted him to throw his life to the gutters of Melbourne. His departure from the church was met by a few who gathered to boo him and shout, get your hair cut. There were even greater disturbances in Adelaide where a crowd of between 10,000 and 15,000 people, mostly youths, had gathered outside a meeting. All the city's police forces assembled in an attempt to control the mob, using mounted policemen to hold back the crowd from the entrance. Nonetheless, there was damage to the town hall and hotel where Dowie was staying. Back in Zion, Dowie's increasingly luxurious way of life had begun to scandalise even many of his supporters. He visited Mexico to set up a plantation under Zion Industries, but the factories were unsuccessful. On the 24th of September 1905, he suffered a stroke. He then went on to Jamaica to recuperate and work out the details of his Mexican purchase. But on the 20th of April 1906, in his absence from Zion, he was deposed and stripped of his leadership by William Bolivar, who you might recall was his former chief lieutenant who took over the Fitzroy Church in Melbourne when Dowie moved to America. Dowie spent his last few years disabled, estranged from his family. He died at Zion City on the 9th of March 1907 surrounded by a few remaining followers. So in case you're wondering, Zion still exists today, but from what we've researched, while much of its population continues to be strongly religious, it's part of mainstream America. And yes, they do allow alcohol sales there now, although there are places in the city where it continues to be outlawed. Oh yeah, I grew up in one of those dry zones in Melbourne. In Baldwin, and that was one of the legacies of the temperance movement that was there. But Lee, returning to Dowie's story, what are your thoughts? For me, what I find interesting is that it's this classic tale of the rise and fall of a one-man empire. Dowie's clearly ambitious and he's driven, but he overreaches. Early on in Australia, even if his methods annoy people, it's clear that, you know, he's committed to serving his followers, but then he goes on to become this ultra-controlling and out-of-reach figure. That's true, but whatever we think, for modern-day evangelists, Dowie is still a revered figure whose legacy would lay the foundations for faith. The Pentecostal movement continues this close alignment with strongly charismatic individuals and belief in the power of prayer to heal. It's one of the fastest-growing Christian movements in many countries, including Australia. Here's Dr Chant. But overall, uh, I'd have to say that Dowie's a hero and, uh, and uh, he's a man who of which we have much to learn, um, if nothing else, just about 
the need to stay with one's convictions and not to be easily turned aside and to be prepared to suffer for the gospel, be prepared to take risks, be prepared to put up with criticism uh, if, as long as your motive and your aim is pure, uh, but also to be aware of the dangers that when you do get in a position of power, it's very easy to allow that to become an end in itself rather than the servant of the, the kingdom of God. So that's all for today. But be sure to tune in for our next episode because it's Dead and Berry's final offering. No! Well, it's for this series at least. Okay. Next time we flash back to World War II Melbourne, plagued by power cuts and teeming with American GIs on R&R leave from the war. It's against this backdrop that one by one, the dead bodies of young women start to surface. Join us then for this last generous helping of true crime and hidden Melbourne history. You can jump on our website at deadandburiedpodcast.com to explore the original evidence we use to build our stories and sign up to our mailing list for new story details. We'd love to hear your Melbourne history stories too, so drop us an email. And if you enjoyed the podcast, let everyone know with an iTunes review. Dead and Buried Podcast is supported by the City of Melbourne and brought to you by bornandbredhistoricalresearch.com.au. Get in touch and we'll help you find what you're looking for.